Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern marvels, chrono skimming, classics, interviews, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. We have a trio of awesome recent titles for you today, kicking things off with X-Men number 11, then taking a look at X-Men Unlimited numbers 29 through 33, before kicking things over to Moon Knight, Black, White, and Blood number 1. It's a jam-packed one today, so let's jump right in with X-Men number 11, and we hope you guys enjoy our coverage as much as we enjoyed making it, and don't forget if you like like what you hear you might even like what you see over on twitter so why don't you give us a follow over at x is for podcast Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast where we take a look at modern marvels, we chrono skim the classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hi everybody, I'm Jake. You can find me occupying my own petal of Orcus over on Twitter at Omega Sentinel. That's O-H Mega Sentinel. I'm Josh Wheel. You can find me at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L on Twitter and asleepatthewheel.com. And from now until November 8th as the progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate in Florida, you can find me across social media at wheel the number four u.s senate and at joshwheel.org well i am super excited to be here with you guys to talk about what is definitely a bit of a game changer issue for the current state of the destiny of x we're here to take a look at x-men number 11 x-men number 11 brought to us by jerry duggan pepe laraz marte gracia feces clayton cowles it's been a really interesting conversation the evolving discussion about x-men i think we were all pretty hot on number one some of us were a little annihilation wave size suspicious about number two (laughs) and it's been super duper your results may vary ever since and i want to get your guys baseline on x-men one through ten before we jump into this one how have you guys overall been feeling about the series i myself would give it a b strong character beats but frequently too far between for each character's beats for me this is a solid B series. And I think the most disappointing thing isn't that it's averaging a B, it's that it's not ever swinging for an A. It's not reaching big enough or expanding itself to try to really hit a home run. It is giving us solid issues, typically focused on a single character. It rarely feels like we're getting a team book because we're always getting these single character spotlights. That the work done on each character through the first First 10 issues has been very solid. It's almost like there are parts where it's holding itself back, where it doesn't go as far into the character work as it could. This feels to me like it is the Avengers book of the X-Men world. This is where the heroes live. The two Avengers coming in to talk to Shiro early in the issue, that was really what solidified it to me that this was like, oh, a peer team to those teams. And I guess with that in mind, it feels like it's a bit of a collage book. There's uh, individual storytelling, there's big action sequences there is some small plot maneuvering for the greater 
Krakoa, but it's too many different things and not enough one thing, I think is the is the problem. But I like all those little things. So if Jerry Dugan was to come up and say, I wrote 10 issues of X-Men, I'd be like, did you? Or did you write one single issue 10 times? It feels like it's 10 different things being done. And yeah, not none of them really get the space to grow out. The only thing that I think really, for me, has grown in this book is Sync as a character because we had so little of him to begin with that any sort of development of his interiority is major growth for him. I 100% agree. My favorite moment in the book was the sync moment. I maybe don't agree, actually. I think that sync has been in the exact same position that he was in since Hickman left him. This is an example, sort of one note a lot of times, and there's a lot of ways you can tell that note. There's no just Romeo and Juliet was only good the first time, you know what I mean? But I feel like this is still the same longing to be a better hero by view of Laura that I've had since Hickman left sync off. I feel like this is the same sync that Duggan picked up and hasn't moved with at any point. Part of what makes it still work for me is the fact that Hickman didn't really get to explore sync. Hickman mm-hmm. set this up. Hickman mm-hmm. teed up this sync and then left him there for Duggan. And so now, you know, while Duggan hasn't brought him any new places, we have actually been getting time for this character to settle, develop, fit in in the world of x-men he's one of those characters that has like a hundred appearances even though so many people recognize him iconographically because of his inclusion in like such you know major images from the 90s he has a hundred appearances but he was in a title that ran for 75 issues exactly ended in the late 90s with his death when gen x showed up in other books like you know marvel team-up spider-man and gen x or you know in his phallus covenant introduction in x uncanny x-men and x-men or in you know whatever like there's only a handful of those and they're typically team things like he never got outside of generation x sync spotlight time he was just Mm -hmm. one of the kids showing up for you know special issue like we're getting sync time i'm not sure human english words can convey the deep held love that i have for gen x as a series it was you know it was (laughs) thank you thank you thank you so much thank you (laughs) it was the series that started when i started reading comics and so I was it was something that I was able to pick up on going I fell in love with the characters honestly Gen X is one of my favorites I love those characters and I loved Sync since his first appearance during the Phalanx Covenant one of the things that I really love about what's been happening in this book is the promise that was set up with Sync all those years ago is finally delivered on there's one panel I remember when Jubilee and Sync are fighting someone from Gene Nation it might have been either Levi or Jordash Oshkosh Bagash Whichever member of Gene Nation it was. (laughs) It was Gap, actually. Um, Oh, you're so right. Yeah, there was this expository panel talking about how Sink and Jubilee would one day be some of the most powerful mutants, uh, like, of their kind, assuming they survived that long. And I was like, oh, well, of course they'll survive that long. They're not going to kill them off, dot, dot, dot. So getting to see Sink really fully matured into his power is really cool. Getting to see him kind of flex 
is really cool and something that I feel I've been waiting for since I was like a literal child. So this has been really, really satisfying. I totally see the Laura thing, the Wolverine thing as kind of needling, but I still, even in the writing, maybe it's because I want it. I don't see that as his primary motivation. I see his primary motivation as like, be the best hero you can be. Because I have contended that if he wanted to reconnect with Laura, he would have been trying harder through this book. I have reached a point with issue 11, which is my least favorite issue of the 11 in this series, is my least favorite issue of any issue Duggan has wrote in since Hoxpock in the X office. I don't know that I'm in a place where I can say, well, you, where I want to positively read in and say that this is building and getting, because at some point, if you're not actually giving it to me, I have to stop telling myself that like, no, 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 like this is what you're going to give me because you're not actually giving it to me. We see the X-Men journey to this game world plotline that's been building in the background. We see the return of the Rocket Raccoon appearance, which sure, I'm, I'm all here for it. Little bits of other things going on in the background, but this really focuses on bringing this Cordyceps Jones thing that's been running through the background to the forefront. And I cannot wait to get to the last page reveal, but we'll hold off on that for a minute. So this really is meant to be a culmination of stuff that's been building in the background since issue one. And I have been a little frustrated waiting for it myself. Josh, I just wanted to introduce the issue for everybody listening to know where we're picking up. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I like that you mentioned the rocket. So rocket and sync were those two pages were probably the only two pages that I would say I enjoyed or had good character moments. Just the kind of rocket sitting on the sidelines and like fucking around with the X-Men and being like, I'm so glad I got to visit there before y'all do whatever the fuck it is y'all going to do to it. <laughs> and then the sync moment that I've been Wolverine more than anyone else has been Wolverine, I thought was a great touch after he just shredded the island of Dr. Moreau Chimera. But aside from that, it really lost me early on with Polaris. All right, team, we all know our mission. Let's go. And one panel, they split up and walk away. Very next panel, Lorna gets distracted by a pretty dress, makes this face that I don't even like. This feels so regressive. Like this feels like the type of thing that would happen in like one of the Roy Thomas, Neil Adams issues. And we'd be like, well, you got to understand like it was the, you know, late 60s or early 70s. And just good Lord. And and to happen from the guy that we have praised and lauded so much for writing books with multiple female characters, giving them all unique voices and agency to see that we're getting, okay, we're going to do that Marauders thing, focusing on four female characters on an adventure today, and then kick it off like that was... Like, it was not a good way to start this book for me. Well, and I think there's something to her self-possession. Like, Mm -hmm. I maybe saw it as like, Polaris has always been so bedraggled by the weight of her existence and her life. And just like, Polaris's life sucks. You know what I mean? And like, it always sucks. And she's finally like, happy enough that she can be distracted by a dress. I don't love it. Like, I don't need it. But that, I I saw maybe it was a little bit 
bit of she gets to experience frivolity. Josh, I definitely see the read that you are bringing to it. Like without any context, it's problematic because it is, oh, woman is shopping and is tempted by expensive dress and immediately goes off mission. Oh God, like that does that's not a good look. But I think, Nico, your comments about Polaris's historical context are really important. This is, and not to mention her characterization in this book has been a little more like, yeah, I own my power. Yeah, I love being like a princess of Krakoa. Yes, I am self-possessed enough that this whole mission, like, yeah, yeah, it's fine, but it's not really like ringing my danger bells. This doesn't seem like like super, super scary to me because I'm Polaris and I've been out in space before. I mean, I think there's a big difference, though, between the, the stressed, overworked, gifted child, like promised female character getting to enjoy frivolity. But like, there's a way you do that. Like, I just, she's Magneto's daughter and she fucking realizes it. She shows up to her mission with her sunglasses and her big cup of coffee and is like, oy vey. She's overconfident to the point of almost being lazy. And while it's a funny beat, I also just love seeing her so sure of herself that she's like, I can't fuck this up. That's so refreshing from the like perpetually insecure Polaris who uh, that's, I mean, who's just been around for forever. Like I, I, this is, this is refreshing for me. Like I like this a lot. That was not the read I got off that panel, though. Like, that was not, like, a coy knowing, like, I bet you I can do the mission and have the dress and do both. Like, that was a shiny thing. I don't think she would do it otherwise, though. I don't think she would buy the dress if she didn't think she could also perform the mission. That's because I think that's the difference between Polaris and some frivolous rich girl shopping is that she does have her power and she is confident. But that goes exactly back to what I was saying earlier about Duggan is that at some point you have to give me text. Like I can't be doing all the work and lifting on this and saying like, well, no, because I'm going to read it this way that makes it better. At some point you have to make the book better. I'd like to point to an example of where I think Duggan heard audience response and reacted in a positive way, one of the things we've been frustrated with as a team is the continued underrepresentation and underutilization of Sunfire, where we've been concerned that he's like not fucking in this book anymore. I think we thought he went to X-Men Red. I think we thought he maybe went to the moon, you know, literally. Who knows? But like, it was really cool seeing him kind of be like, yes, Iron Man. Yes, Captain Marvel. I am Captain Big Dickery Doc. And you are all on my space planet. And like, it was just nice to see Sun Sunfire flex in a way that didn't involve shouting, although there was a real questionable exclamation point. (laughs) That whole sequence was like, they're there to push his buttons and try and get him to turn over on the X-Men. And he has experienced enough growth now that he's not going for it. And he sees what they're doing. Like, like the fact that Sync is like, wow, everyone knows that I push Sunfire's buttons, but he doesn't get pushed. He's just like, oh yeah, like you make your point, but the goalie is the most important member of the team. The fact that pages like that where we're getting okay you know what this is a team book you have seven characters we're gonna take a page to touch base with each character so that way we don't hit the point where it's been like hey it's been six months since we've seen sunfire or hey it's been eight issues since we've seen pyro in marauders like where you just kind of forget about characters because they're not in the story you're excited about and you haven't been following up with them like threading along or keeping them in the background is important on a team book And I am glad to see 
that we got that moment with Sunfire since he was not in the A or B story here. And, you know, it is fascinating that this book has time for an A, B, and kind of like C and D story. But the story that I was perhaps... It kind of does. It happened. It's trying. So, yes, it's trying. And I found myself sort of confused on Cordyceps Jones. I think perhaps the character has been so ambiguous in the background of X-Men that I didn't really understand the way he was meant to function. But I'm ultimately excited to see that Duggan had a short-term, long-ish term plan in mind. Okay, I'm glad you said that because I felt exactly the same way. Like, I felt like, holy shit, like, like we'd been getting this character, not learning anything about it, like not really knowing much. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, here's all of this fucking detail and like how this character's like shit works and like what they look like and flexing and like fuck was I supposed to know that they do this like because we've been seeing them for almost a year now was I supposed to know this I'm glad that you mentioned that it did feel like there was a little bit of a jump there or presumed like okay we're comfortable enough with the character because they've been in the background that you can just do this but it okay I I didn't miss anything I did like that we got Mojo coming in and explaining where Game World came from and how he lost control of it I also really liked his tiny little oyster lawyer he was adorable i think perhaps i'll find some resonance here i did not and continue to dislike how quickly laura got taken down uh, i've not i've not really liked how laura has been handled through the series in general because i think of all the characters she's had the least exploration of her role her interiority her like why she's on the team like if this were logan we'd be getting a lot more but because it's laura it really does feel like she's being treated like an action figure i felt like compared to hickman where hickman was constantly like reassuring us that like no she's not like a wolverine copy or a lesser wolverine or like the cute girl wolverine she's a fucking wolverine that Mm -hmm. like okay well you know what if you send four x-men out on a mission logan's not going down in the first five seconds like that never fucking happens like like that's not what the wolverine is on the mission i mean like i get the like we're setting up to have wolverine be co-opted by cordyceps jones so the other x-men have to fight her same with same with gene i guess which again like what good is a telepathic screen if it can't keep fungal spores out for that whole brag about how what is it the most like the weirdest constructed i did not even let the phoenix command me which i thought was a very poorly constructed sentence and then she's immediately taken down by spore 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 i this is the same gene that walked in and kicked the fucking cock off of null in king and black this is always the problem with gene though is that she's written so unevenly i think i personally think that the best thing to do with her is to find some way to take her off a battle like any sort of battle board because she's too powerful and if they don't write her at the appropriate powerful power level it just seems unrealistic and this to me is just very unrealistic it's not even just gene this is symptomatic of the big dicksmanship that my villain is bigger and badder than your villain sort of creates and that's not in any one writer but that's the nature of corporate comics where every book needs to be bigger and badder than the last book so now of course cordyceps jones is so unstoppable that he can take gene out decontextualizing it from that Gene took on Null, who's able to fight Thor, which is my problem with the Iceman thing at the end of Marauders. You gotta keep the, you know, not like to be that guy, but the Ohat movie. The transitive property of comic books is, I mean, is broken. Is so hard broken. Broke, broke, broken. 
we got to talk Scott. We got to talk Scott. There is literally about two hours and 20 minutes of audio of Josh and I laugh screaming at the top of our lungs about Sinister Mm -hmm. at this point. There's nothing unkooky when Sinister is around. Because he didn't really appear during the mutant massacre, because he really only first appeared in Inferno, I don't have like deep ties and associations to all of that murder and bloodshed. But I love how he's just so prissy. So he's like a bratty sub daddy bottom. He's a dandy. That's it. He's the perfect dandy. Pre Gillen. And this is one of the things that, you know, there's lots of tape as Nico was saying of us talking about all of my favorite. And I think the best sinister moments are when he's not a threat. All of the ones that I think back on and love are like the scene where he visits Scott and they're like walking through like a snowy forest together. And he yeah. drops that line of like, you know, like I've been watching you brothers? and your brothers. <laughs> what, yeah. brothers? Yep. Cause he's like, He's like, oh, I've got a secret. I've got gossip, but I'm not telling you. Because yes. the seeds of the camp are well planted. Like X Factor, just... X Factor mm. 103, 104, where Havoc gets possessed by Malice and Sinister shows up and is like, no, 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 no. No one fucks with a Summers brother except for me. Mm. <laughs> and he shows up to save the day because how dare you play with my toys? There were some like really interesting moments in the art in the end of Inferno when he's like at the X-Mansion. It's really wiggy stuff. Like when he's got the unconscious Jean in his arms and he goes to kiss her, which was so uncomfortable. There's also a scene where like Havoc in his tattered costume has this like really sassy pose. Like I just associate sinister appearances with everyone just kind of going total sass master. Even before the Gillen sort of recontextualization that was that was there for the maturing and, and Gillen really like really brought that into the fore and it was it's been a lot of fun seeing this like dastardly evil funny man running around since that sort of recontextualization well i mean the character was very ill-defined but it was not translated into the animated series and so you know when people think back to like 90s stuff and those voices and kind of character archetypes like the fact that the animated series sinister was just he sounded like this and not at all like a homosexual and he was like yeah Oh, my body. What are you doing to my body? Whereas he should have sounded like, ooh, what are you doing to my body? Yes. Hey, girls, what are you doing to my body? The lines hey. are all there. If it were if it were like Harvey Firestein or someone like that, what are you doing to my what body? What are you doing to my body? I Bruce Valanche as Apocalypse. Yeah, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Any, yeah, it's there's so much potential, even in the animated series for that sinister, if he'd been given a different voice. Once you go back and look at other appearances of Dr. Stasis, you see it. You see this is this is a sassy sinister. Nico, can you help me out? What is our Dr. Stasis history? Like, every time I read one of these issues of X-Men now, I'm also trying to remember, like, did we see Cyclops die? Like, were we just told it happened? Did I miss it? Like... No, we saw him die on panel in a flashback. Dr. Stasis slit his throat with a uh, scalpel, I think. Dr. Okay. Stasis has ever appeared in X-Men Volume 6, that's this guy, numbers 1, 2, 3, 5, 6, 7, 9, and now this issue, number 11. So he's had seven appearances throughout the Marvel Universe, but, you know, once again, all pretty locked into this series. Now, in addition, he was mentioned 
in issues four and 10 where he didn't appear. So that is pretty significant. You know, we haven't had a lot of great looks at him, but he's definitely been, you know, somewhere running around the background of this run. Alongside Jones. Yeah, I gotta say, alongside a lot of other Duggins, sort of, you know, it's interesting because it's sort of like he's cultivating his own X garden. While it might not fucking bang in all the ways I want right now, I think there's a lot to be mined from it later. Like, I'll be honest, one of my least favorite arcs in the history of Uncanny X-Men is the rise and fall of the Shi'ar Empire. Kind of like bar none, far and away one of my least favorite ever. But I love so... Oh, and Deadly Genesis is right up there. But I love so many of the things from that run in retrospect. I love so much of what it gave us, the increased presence of Warpath. I love... I fucking love Corvus and the Phoenix Blade because it's the dumbest, most escaped Midgar Final Fantasy looking motherfucking bullshit with some plume on its head I have ever seen. Not to mention the like psychodrama of Rachel dating a sword that's her mom. Yes! So yeah, I don't love the arc, but I love what came from it. This has the markings of that for people who aren't enjoying it. And for those who are, hey, good news, strap in. You're going to have it for a while. So with everything you just said, does this, do we think that this is a title that needs to be read in trade? Yes. Yes. I, I do. Because a lot of these things are happening in the background. It will feel tighter if you're reading it issue to issue in, in one sitting or in a few sittings rather than waiting months for the story to resolve. But I think one of the things that Jerry is good at that I think Hickman is also good at is is this like seed scattering. Hickman is also good at kind of running a main plot, like a substantial main plot alongside all of that seed planting. Something that I noticed in Marauders as well was that there are a lot of seeds being planted, but not necessarily as many being germinated. And I think that's the same here. I think a lot of seeds are being planted for potential storytelling. And, and like you just said, Nico, you know, we could hate some of these seeds in their initial presentation, but what they give rise to can be really, really fun and really interesting. And So I also want to say how stupid I ultimately felt at how many times I had to look at that final fucking page before I realized why there was a club on his forehead instead of a diamond. <laughs> nope, it's the greatest thing ever. It is some weapon, yeah. it is some yep. weapon 10 level bullshit. It oh, this... is everything I've ever needed. This yep. is the best thing that I, Jerry Duggan, 10,000 passes for the rest of his life. If this passes. was Bendis, if this was Bendis, we would know for a fact that there were a sinister of hearts and a sinister of spades out there as well yes yes i'm i'm obsessed i am so happy with it it is the dumbest stupidest cutest smartest best cleverest it is. most obvious it is so stupid and so seen. smart at the same time Oh, yeah. it's just so it challenges everything I want to think about this run because it has yeah. such a like a Stan Lee, Jack Kirby tongue in cheek feel. It is so good. It gets the better of me because I didn't have a chance to read it. And I was staying with Jake's amazing husband, TK. And uh, he was like, did you have a chance to read it yet? And I was like, no. And he was like, oh, there's a last page reveal. You should read it. And I was like, no, just tell me. I'm not going to have a chance to read it today. And he was like, no, <laughs> I don't want to spoil you it for you. have to see it. And he was like, no, I'm not to spoil it and i was like no i need you to tell me and he was like all right dr stasis is a sinister clone but instead of a diamond he's got a club on his forehead and i was like he's got a club on his forehead that's so stupid i hate i hate i, I love I, I i love i love that i love that i love that i love that and like yeah. it like washed over me how much i enjoyed the cleverness of this kind of straightforward silly idea also not for nothing but pepe laraz knows how to draw sinister if you know what i mean oh pepe my laraz goodness. can draw any Anything. Oh, the art.
art, no one, there has not been a single complaint from any of us about the art. The colors in this book are fucking gorgeous. The art, like. It's so weird. It's so beautiful. Every time Cyclops takes an optic blast, I'm just like, ah, yes, more. I think one of my favorite sequences is, as much as I hate it actually happening, when Wolverine is co-opted by Cordyceps Jones, because I just love her dress and I love the movement of her dress. I want to get your guys' general read on where we're at with this title. There's something sort of disconnected from the rest of the Marvel Universe, which we've addressed kind of from day one when discussing this book. But more than anything, as the playing field opens up to more disconnected titles, like Knights of X, which by virtue of the fact that it takes place in another world in many ways, Knights of X is immediately removed from a lot of the active action. Wolverine and X-Force are sort of like busy jerking each other off. So like they're, you know, they're they're happy with each other. And I feel as though knowing that New Mutants has always played well with other titles, but really done its own thing. I don't know how many really standalone X titles I need right now. I kind of want them to be a little bit more interconnected. How do you guys feel about the future of X-Men as an interconnected title with everything going on in the upcoming Judgment Day? So oddly enough, this is the book that I would say is the most like this is the X lines connection to the Marvel Universe because like this is the one where you know the the treehouse in New York is where we're getting the interactions with Devil's Reign it's where you know we're seeing the poker games with Rhino and you know we're seeing Rocket Raccoon come by it's it's where we're getting the reminders that even we had you know the the little Sunfire scene with Iron Man and Captain Marvel like this this feels like where the X line this is the node connecting the X office which is pretty much building their own world and doing their own thing connecting with the rest of you know the the main 616 in just little tiny ways i agree with that this is the superhero book that stands alongside the other superhero books you know this is the this is the mutant fantastic Four. this is the mutant avengers this is the x-men that's how they're showing up and it's a bridge to some of the other titles you know we saw bridges we saw like connection points to x-men red we read about connection points to knights of x it's this team that you see in that black knight issue this is the extinction team essentially like this is this is the team that's going to answer the call when the world is in danger so it makes sense to me that they feel a little more in the greater world and a little less in krakoa even though there are strong krakoan threads there it feels like they're all telling the same thematic story about this world that's growing out and beginning to see the cracks in its firmament and trying to figure out how to address that and that's you know in in some ways i think this the formation of the x-men was a response to one of those one of those cracks that scott and gene saw and said you know we need we need there to be an x-men team next week we're going to talk a bit about the strangely growing x-men interconnectivity that dropped on free comic book day with a bit of a game and i'm really excited to talk about that game but until then you know i've really enjoyed this discussion about x-men number 11 with you guys it's really been interesting as someone who sort of straddled the line of i like a lot of this title i've got some questions about a lot of this title and this issue was really representative of that for me and being a part of it with you guys was a blast and i look forward to talking about the series more with you guys so that said what do you guys hope for from this book going forward is there a particular storyline you need because obviously i need all four suits of sinister this is not a debate i am not here to play games i am not fucking around i need them so good it's like you can't take one color out of a bag of skittles it tastes wrong i need all four i need 
a real story. I need something that like we look back and talk and we're like, you know, like those at four issues or those three. Like I need something that has like a title part one, part two, part three. Like I need mm-hmm. there to be a something that is able to build with multiple acts and involve these characters. I need all of these little background things and one offs to have kind of like converged on something and there to be a major story it doesn't need to be like a side series or a crossover it can just be you know like x-men issues whatever 13 through 16 or whatever 15 through 20 like something that makes its own great trade that we're like oh that but this needs to build to something or go somewhere otherwise like dugan's just like edging us i want to see this all cap into something really glorious with high stakes but i also want to see some of these what i think of as like the many chekhov's guns that have been laid out in this series come to come to fruition get fired like i what is going on with that nightcrawler corpse that everyone keeps talking about on phobos like i know why it's there i know how it got there what is orcus doing with it what are they doing with the many wolverine corpses that they have i want more orcus i want to i want more of this conflict between orcus and the mutants to come to a head and i think this is an appropriate book for it because because this is the extinction team and you know if there's one other major hope i have for from this title it's that duggan is given the room to continue his plan in whatever form it needs to take you know when you think about modern masterpieces you know aaron's thor comes to mind and even though his time on thor did come to an end we still see threads of it ran through his valkyrie title and now into avengers forever so he's still mapping that bigger picture you know we just saw it very recently with leah williams she discussed publicly how she originally conceived parts of trial of magneto as x factor volume Mm -hmm. three and now teeny howard with knights of x coming out of excalibur there's room to continue it even if you change the name of the book so no matter what i do want to see jerry duggan get an opportunity to bring these ideas to fruition you know like i said i think this is going to be the book people mine for years so Mm -hmm. i'm not concerned with the quality of the ideas just perhaps the monthly experience of a reading Hey everybody, Nico here again. And X-Men Unlimited has been such a fascinating thing to cover. And those of you who have been enjoying our coverage, but not really sure if you're like into reading online, the second volume of X-Men Unlimited, X-Men Green, is going to be seeing publication in print real soon. So those of you who have been checking things out like Latitude when it received physical print, you'll be able to read along with the story that this one is a follow-up to. And we hope you guys enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exits for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and eco-terrorists week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm TK, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And I'm Steven, you can find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder, and also on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star Group. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah, that's P-E-A-K, and we hope you survive this experience, just like these run-ins with Namor and Black Panther, as well as crazy environmental killers. And it's like, whoa, there are a lot of people hurting the environment who are paying big money to do so. 
That sounds like we must be talking about the latest installment of the X-Men Green storyline from uh, the X-Men Unlimited Infinity comic, written by Carla Pacheco, with art by Emilia Liso, colorist Rochelle Rosenberg, and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. Very intense pickup of a story that we left off, having been written by Jerry Duggan for its first arc, where we saw a really big transformation for the character of Nature Girl. We got reintroduced to Sauron in kind of a more anti-hero form and we were introduced to the character of curse who people feel certain ways about including myself i ended up liking curse more in this part of i think story. i kind of did too yeah i uh i have this like theory that curse has like very similar powers to wanda actually i i it's so funny you say that i was really thinking like this is a reality warper that has been so traumatized that she's an edgelord reality warper that can yeah. only reality warp <laughs> through edgelordiness which is weird <laughs> but the more they acknowledge it the kind of better it gets. Yeah, I like that there was more emphasis on the negative effects of her powers. I've grown to really enjoy the moments that she uses her powers. It's made a lot of sense to me, especially if I think about it in like a Wanda-esque type of way. I think I am enjoying Curse's personality as it gets developed more throughout this story. I do wish there were a little bit, just, just slight clarifications on what the extent of her powers are only because I feel like they're using her in a similar way to bring up Wanda as uh, kind of the Swiss army knife where you want, if you need something to have to happen, you're going to have curse do it. If she can just wish anything to happen, I would like slight clarification on like, what what are the extents? Are there ramifications? You know, Domino had a story where every time she had good luck, bad luck happened to somebody else. And as dumb as I think that is something like this, where like, I like the idea of there being a cost, you know, equivalent exchange, if you will, if anybody who's a fan of Full Metal Alchemist. But I do appreciate the lightness that Curse brings comparative to Nature Girl's very abrasive personality that she's adopted throughout all of this. Yeah. We left off with them being released from the pit and were told to do things smarter. They went on their little journey and instead of doing things smarter, they're doing things the exact same way that they did before, but with cameos. Yeah, that was something Jonah and I were talking about before we started recording. It really is the same strategy, which on the one hand, it feels like for the sustainability of the storyline of Krakoa's eco-defense wing that it really doesn't make a lot of sense. And to me, that's unfortunate because I like the idea that the mutants and Krakoa being sort of more in touch with a their, the sacred land that they live on that is a living being that is connected to the earth, they might really start to invest in the health of the earth and Nature Girl would be a great character for that. I can forgive a lot of the stuff that happened in Duggan's run, which I really didn't like, which started with Nature Girl stabbing a very innocent man in the neck and got more extreme. But as it got more extreme, you could still kind of justify and say that the people that she was attacking were you know involved in the destruction of the earth she kind of made some poor decisions about how she was going about it but we got kind of a place to start fresh here and my hope was to see even if she was really leaning into that anti-hero mode maybe not being so forgiving of people who were just doing their jobs which is a word you know a phrase that I hate and is uttered a lot here but I could have been okay with a lot of stuff this really is 
is for plot and storyline beats for Nature Girl, a lot of just the same stuff. And it I'm worried about what it's doing for the character long term. I almost wonder if at this point, it's not really about Nature Girl. It's now just about Curse and Sauron. <laughs> Um, like nature girl is just she's just on this path and now we're mostly seeing like curse and sauron revolving around her i'm really sad to see where this is going the extremeness of her you know stabbing the guy in the throat in the first part of the story and then making the last guy that we saw her kill kind of explode in a bunch of roots into a krakoan gate that was just so dark for what i was expecting Something that I'm recognizing as a larger problem with the overall story, I feel like Nature Girl's goal is way too broad. She's trying to, Nature Girl's whole mission right now is I'm going to save the Earth from these evil scum who are hurting the Earth. But that feels way too, not only too generic, it feels insurmountable. So what is she going to do? Is the rest of the story just going to be her constantly just killing people who are, you know, harming the environment? There are also people who, like you said, TK, even though they're trying to play a role, it's really hard to feel blame for people who are doing work and who have a job because you are you going to blame people for working for you know quote unquote a bad company when they have they themselves might not have any other options they might need that amount of money or whatever it's paying they might need the certain benefits whatever it is i don't know if this goal is like an ascertainable goal that we the audience can root for nature girl to fulfill because it doesn't seem like it is fulfillable and if it's the goal it's not fulfillable then what it's the point of her character arc because i'm not really seeing a lot of nuance it's not like nature girl is coming to realize that maybe this problem that she's trying to solve is insurmountable with the method she's going with and she might need to try something else it kind of just seems like she's very content doing what she's doing and it feels slightly stagnant in terms of well where is this character supposed to go from here and this might be the tragic sort of fall from grace of a character but also an evolution of the character into more of like the voice of the earth and a force of nature we do get that moment in the black panther issue when she sort of has the deep communication with the animals and sees their rage and their desire for her to fight and that is then followed by her taking the next step in her transformation physically we are seeing things change for her and it's possible that this is more of a tragic story you know this teenage that doesn't really seem to have any great ideas for how to practically solve this problem that she's seeing, but is taking a lot of action and a lot of it ill-advised and is changing a lot and is in touch with something. It's this rage of the earth. It all makes a lot of sense in a certain capacity, but it is sort of difficult to root for. And again, it makes me wonder about what happens with this character long-term. They gift her their rage, which I'm not even altogether certain what that exactly means because uh, that seems more like a curse to me but I feel like the rage part with the flashes of the animals didn't really hit right for me because you know the whole point is that she's trying to take reclaim I guess the earth for you know the animals but then in the flashes of all the animals they were fighting each other in you know environments where they do fight for survival 
people and it wasn't anything to do with other humans destroying the earth so like really what was that for I think I want to take a brief pivot over to talking about the rogues gallery of guest stars that we get in this particular issue, including oh, Namor, yeah. Black oh. Panther, Horticulture. It's really a veritable who's who of current X-Men, not even entirely antagonists, just people that are shown as sort of a counterbalance to what's going on in Krakoa that have their own concerns, their own kingdoms that Krakoa affects pretty deeply. Starting with with our first guest, Namor. What did you guys think about these big names showing up in the book? I thought that the artist treated him very well because he looked great. And that's important for Namor. Yes, it is. I actually really liked his appearance. I thought he was he was written really well. In terms of the expansive roster of guest characters we've got, Namor makes really great sense considering that Namor's domain covers, what was it, 75% of the planet? And Nature Girl, you know, even though she's trying to save the entire Earth, she is impeding in on his territory. So him having a comment and a confrontation with her about it, I do appreciate. I 100% completely saw that he was holding back. That was not Namor anywhere near full strength because I don't think any of them could take Namor at maybe 50% power. There's try no to, way. Try yeah. to be generous. I do think Namor was a great character in terms of who they can use to have a comment on what Nature Girl is doing from an outside perspective from somebody who also has concerns about it, but understands there's a specific way about going about things that will create a net positive change without sacrificing what would be general morals. And I say general morals because I don't think Nature Girl's morals are aligned with what the general population would assume as morals at least right now and i don't think namors are necessarily either namor and black panther especially really the way that they are written and what they say definitely helps me believe that the writer has very clear intentions for nature girl like carla pacheco is writing other people in the book that are saying this is not the way to do it there were subtler ways we had plans and she's con nature girl is constantly pushing back against that that in this very teenage rage way that is also enhanced by her hearing the voice of the earth and the voice of the animals. And it's interesting because Namor's like, hey, I hear it too. I really respect what you're doing, but this is not the way to do it. And to me, this is like one of the big signals that this is meant to be more of a tragic arc for Nature Girl. Yeah, I could see that. From a certain perspective, it kind of feels almost like the book is trying to be a little bit like on the political side. They tried to make a both sides have valid points kind of situation and it just feels like that here where it's like you have this super extreme side and then the other side where it's just these guys are just trying to work you know what I mean I feel like her story is just to me getting lost in in this weird point that is trying to be made I think it's so tough because there's a viewpoint that things are so extremely bad where it comes to the health of our planet and what's going on with the environment and what we can do to fix it and how we treat the other living creatures on this planet that the idea that you would have blind rage and just do anything to punish and stop it actually 
does make a lot of sense. It is very difficult to capture the nuance of that, especially within a teenage girl, and to make a coherent point about what is valid action and what is heroic action and what makes sense and what's sort of okay and permissible to cheer and root for in a character that is embodying that kind of rage. It's just a really difficult thing. I more and more feel like I get it with Nature Girl and I'm not entirely disagreeing with what she's doing, but I also feel like it it just needs more page space to be explored and a really, really deft writerly hand, which Carla Pacheco is doing some incredible writing on this, some really fun, really funny stuff at times. I love the sort of like each time they shift to a different venue, they get a new like thematic outfit set and everything. It's very like there's an RPG quality to it that I really enjoy. I think that that's actually very fair when it comes to her journey. So we get it. We get like what anger can lead you to do, but it's just, she's just so out of control that in my opinion, I do think that that gets lost. I don't think we're actually seeing enough of she's being controlled by the outside force. It just seems like she just kind of is her and she just is angry instead of she has the rage of the animals even though they said it it just doesn't really translate well to me as you said i think it just needs more page space to be fleshed out more and i wish i was seeing her get like solid wins with that rage like even if she was still screwing up and doing stuff that was too extreme if she had a couple moments where she was like channeling that rage into a thing that was like okay she just did a really good thing or just fixed something or just changed the course of some problem that we see within the environment that would really make me at least have that sort of like I root for her while I might not necessarily agree with her methods or like clearly this rage can be channeled into something it does just seem here like we're going from thing to thing to thing wondering what we can take from this right it's thing to thing to thing and she doesn't get a win so it's like what exactly is the point of this poor girl who just keeps losing Losing. And that's what I mean by like, there seems to be like that weird politic aspect to it. I don't know if we're getting enough delineation between what Nature Girl is doing as extremism versus the larger effect of is she actually doing good? And you know, the term good is very relative, but I don't know if the book is giving us enough to say which way she's going, which might be on purpose, but I think for what the main plot, I do think that we do need a clear line of what is or isn't acceptable at this point. I do think her visiting horticulture was an actually an, a very interesting choice because they are people who aren't necessarily the kindest, but they aren't also really doing bad. Sure, they're kind of like messing with the mutants a little bit, but in reality, they're kind of just more interested in the fauna and that in the floral technology as opposed to really anything else and you can't really blame them for wanting to study things unfortunately that's not really up to the mutants if people want to study what they're doing that's not really you can't say no you can't study that that's not how that things work their wavy line of where they stand works better as opposed to nature girl because it's so far in the extreme i don't know how much more if the path continues the same that we can really say well now it's just kind of can we really keep rooting for nature girl is she doing actual good 
good. When this book was developing and before, you know, even after the guy got stabbed in the neck, I kind of that was like a real early, like hard line in the sand. But I still sort of thought this would go in a different direction or like it would turn out that he survived. I don't know. But the idea of X-Men green, you know, as compared to the blue team and the gold team and all the X-Men red, like the idea of X-Men green being the environmental wing and nature girl leading it to me was a really cool idea. And it we've moved, we keep moving further and further away from a point where she can go back to Krakoa and say, you know, give me a real team and let me do stuff. You know, make this like the Marauders, but for environmental stuff. And I think there would be a way to write that story where Disney would not have to worry about like it being too woke or too extreme. This to me is like, I'm surprised that this is getting published, even though it's like I said, it's kind of a tragic tale and Nature Girl is definitely in a lot of ways not in the right but think there is still a lot of sympathy for her character and what she's doing in this book and envisioning an X-Men team that is restrained but doing environmental stuff is to me pretty easy to imagine and I think would be something that would be really cool and it's what I was kind of imagining for this book but we keep moving away from uh, you know we've crossed the Rubicon we will not be able to go back for Nature Girl and I don't believe that Emma Frost Charles Xavier and whoever else is sitting on the Quiet Council will be sanctioning her being an operative for Krakoa representing the environment anytime soon. What the hell is next for her? What could possibly be done to redeem her at all from a writing perspective? I don't even know if redemption is specifically necessary. Not every character has to be redeemed, especially if they start falling. If this is, you know, we're basically seeing Nature Girl's villain arc in real time. Her clear goals aren't really fully formed or defined and her plan isn't really a plan i don't know if there is a clear path forward for this character that's not already what's going on i don't think there was been enough time i don't know if where this story is trying to insinuate it wants to go which i'm not still still not sure where it is i don't know if i think that it's outgrown the charm and the medium of an infinity comic i agree and but that's the thing is like so then are we really just on this ride to watch the complete and total deterioration of this character because like you said like it's completely worn out the charm like where are we then do i enjoy it yeah there is definitely a level to the story that i am enjoying absolutely greatly but i'm not actually certain it's the nature girl aspect It's interesting to put this in the context of the wider Marvel world right now, because I feel like a similar conversation is being had about MCU Scarlet Witch after Multiverse of Madness was really funny to me because I did walk out of that movie a little bit like that's that was a big, like big change for Wanda, big step, like not where I wanted her to go. And my perspective really got moved over and I'm excited to go see the movie again because I saw so many people who had have similar sort of concerns as Wanda or, you know, perspectives or root for the character who felt like, you know, they're not saying anything that she did was right, just that they understand people are the way that they are. They have the motivations that they have. And it's not necessarily from a writerly perspective wrong to write a character that way. It is not wrong to write a character that can't come back from what they've done just because you like that character and want them 
to be able to come back from what they've done. And I think I may be having a similar thing here with Nature Girl. If they told me that this was just a story about this young girl just completely falling from grace and just being an absolute total dumpster fire the entire time, I am still here for it. Like, I am going to continue reading this because I am invested. I just, I just want to know what the hell, like, we're now in the second part. We, we've we revisited the story now. What the hell is happening? It looked like, you know, she, she, you know, she was meant to have that great fall in the first part. So then we were supposed to see her rise, but now we're seeing her fall even deeper. So, you know, just, I'm okay with that. I just want to, I just want to know what the direction is. And, you know, not every story and every writer will have a larger, deeper meaning to things. It is also possible that we're trying to ascribe a higher meaning and a higher point to what this is trying to talk about but it also might not be the case this just might be the story of nature girl going wild i I do want to point out i do love her getting a more you know satyr design you know with the goat legs i think that works really well in terms of this character going through this deeper transformation her transforming physically is a great showcase of saying it's kind of like a new character this is the new take and the new perspective of what this character is doing in the modern age I am still going to be here for the ride of if this is just the direction that the story is taking, if she's just going to, you know, flip the fuck out every every issue. I just, my question, my main concern is, is that sustainable in a serialized, you know, book? And the funny thing is, and I think a possible, at least gesture to the answer to your question comes in the final shot from the last issue of this arc in which we see a group of four very well-known X-Men who are observing the X-Men green teams claim that they are the X-Men as they wantonly destroy the oil workers on a rig. We've got Ilyana Rasputin, Bishop, Jean Grey, and Kitty Pride, and definitely three of those characters have had some serious fall from grace moments. I that's a great point. Bringing back to the demonic transformation with the satyr legs, you know, we actually have somebody in that group who has gone through that kind of a demonic transformation and is standing as one of the captains. You know, I will say that was the one thing that I that made my stomach turn a little bit was them calling themselves the X Men, like. It actually kind of broke me a little bit. But again, there's part of me that likes it because I like the idea of the green team. I love the green team, but this... This is clearly oh. not the green team. Sauron's just not the green team, but we, we love him. He's hilarious. The fact that, like, Canadian has become a joke. Hilarious. Sorry. I love it all. I love the idea that, you know, they, they're they throwing out this name and the, X-Men, the actual X-Men are there watching them on a screen going, what the fuck? But the fact that it's... Magic and Bishop and Jean Grey, who that gave me a little bit of hope for, you know, I don't like the word redemption, but that these characters could go address Nature Girl in a way that regardless of what else would happen, it does put her her story in conversations with the stories of characters that we all love that are flagship X-Men 
you know, Jean is the one that I think of because there was an editorial mandate that she could not come back and could not be redeemed and could not be on the X-Men again because of her eating a bunch of broccoli people and a son. You know, it took a while, but that did get solved. So, you know, Nature Girl, there's more hope maybe than I, I think there is. Like, I always think of it from like a PR perspective, like, well, what the hell is the fallout that they're going to have to deal with for this? How do they fix this on a global scale? You know, I mean, of course, there's going to be suspension of disbelief and I will gladly eat that up. But I just feel, oh, it just, it bothered me for them because all of those characters specifically have overcome so much and such dark moments like bishop has you know there were moments where i was not certain he was ever going to be redeemable you know gene ate the solar system and kitty was possessed i mean there could be something else but i you know she was possessed by the ninja demon and then okay you know yes thank you i cannot remember his freaking name and then you know magic is literally the goddess of limbo i do think the characters they specifically chose to say what are we going to do about this i do think that's great the most likely scenario would be visit leland is the un representative i probably have so. would have to go like on record make a statement saying that the krakoa and the x-men are not, not affiliated with the eco-terrorist group known as calling themselves the x-men Ooh, and they would have they would have to make some kind of statement saying they do not support or endorse what they're doing it doesn't give like carte blanche of like oh they're completely safe they're completely out from under the the they're not no longer on thin ice no, they're still on some pretty fucking thin ice, but I think that would at least do a, enough damage control where they can plausibly try to get some good faith and will back from the public. The characters chose, I think, are a very interesting bunch. I kind of hope it goes in the direction that you talked about, TK, that I also think Nature Girl just needs someone to listen. A lot of times you'll see a lot of frustration when people can't effectively communicate or they don't feel like they're being listened to. And I think that's part of it. I don't think think people are taking what nature girl is taking is as seriously uh, as she is and i think that's frustrating her because she sees the problem and she sees this as the biggest threat right now to their existence but nobody else believes that and i think that these characters can help try to communicate and cross that bridge to an understanding and help her feel heard and maybe find a way that she can continue her mission without the needless bloodshed I think that's actually fair. I think that's a, a great point. There does need to be some kind of a reckoning. And again, it might have something to do with people like Ilyana Rasputin and Jean Grey being able to have one-on-one -on -one conversations that are not sitting in judgment at a trial that is partially there to save face and continue to reflect the law of Krakoa, as we've seen in things like Sabretooth, where you know people are going in the pit that we don't necessarily agree should be there. There, but the Quiet Council has their reasons for putting them there. Uh, I I love the idea that the original trial, you know, and she did try to communicate to the council. You know, I especially remember the moment with Nightcrawler where she was just showing that rage. And I thought Kurt, of all people, would really see that there was something bigger going on. But he failed to. And I have hopes that should the X-Men that we saw at the end of this show up and actually get a chance to talk to her one-on-one -on -one in a non-trial 
situation. If nothing else, we might get a really great conversation and reflection out of it. I no longer really am interested in seeing Quiet Council Krakoa meet out punishment on Nature Girl. I am interested in seeing the story result. Oh yeah, same. Absolutely. I agree. I was actually kind of hoping we were going to get that, if not with Nightcrawler, but with like Wolverine actually, because she feels like right up that alley, you know, for like his next little sidekick. And I'm almost kind of sad that we're not getting that. Oh, uh, horticulture was fun. The end. Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. Moon Knight has been a team favorite for some time now, so of course it only made sense that we would reach out into the Black, White, and Blood title, just as we did for Wolverine and Elektra, and we hope you guys enjoyed just as much as the Midnight Admission enjoyed making this for you. As always, guys, it's a pleasure for me to edit and produce this show for you three times a week, where we're talking MC2 all summer long on Mondays, we're talking Modern Marvels on Wednesdays, and then Fridays, it's an amazing combination of interviews, premiere features, and chrono-skimming classic issues, and you won't want to miss any of it. Don't forget you can follow the show over on Twitter and Instagram at X's for Podcast. You can follow me over at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N on Twitter and Instagram. Don't forget to check us out also over on YouTube at the Hubs Plus Network where you can check out exclusives like our coverage of Daredevil from number one alongside series contributor Tori Sheehan in the form of the Billy Club and that's over on YouTube at Hubs Plus. So enjoy this last segment and until next time, Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember, Judgment Day is a coming, and until next time, we'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome to another exciting segment of Excess for Podcast, where we talk about mutants, marvels, and magic week after week. I'm Nathan, you can find me online at Dazzler AOA on Twitter, where you can find me running backwards the whole story. And that makes me Raven, aka Dame Red Thread. Come over and find me on Twitter and Instagram. Hi everyone, this is Watch, and we're ready to get mooned by Bloody Moon today. <laughs> Let's get mooned. Boo. Boo words. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at Howdy Duda. That's H O W D Y T U D A. Today, we are talking about Moon Knight, Black, White, and Blood. So, we've got three different stories. The first story is Anibus Rex, which is brought to us by Jonathan Hickman and Chris Bellacchio. We've got So White, Yet So Dark, which is our second story, which was brought to us by Morowe Ayadel and Daton Akande. And I'm so sorry if I butchered those names. And we have the last story as the end by Mark Guggenheim and Jorge Fornes. So we also have our letterer throughout this whole thing is BC's Corey Pettit. We have the main cover by Bill Sienkiewicz. We have Chris Bellaccio, Jeff DeCall, Stan Sakai, and Emi Fuji doing variant cover artists. So like Midnight Mission Crew, like where are we at with this issue? Do we think it furthered anything along? Do we think that we got any better understanding of the character from this? And do would you recommend this as a necessary piece of the Moon Knight lore? I know for me, it felt very disconnected from most of the Moon Knight mythology that we know, uh, and from honestly a lot of the concepts of Moon Knight that we know. It it didn't feel connected, and honestly, if I had a chance to go back and you know pick it up or not, I wouldn't. And I hate saying that because there are names here that I really wanted to read, but I did not enjoy reading this. Like the stories were. 
confusing to say the least did not further anything did not give us any more insight into moon knight as a character and i'm not even talking just mark specter because i don't believe the first story even touched mark specter's arena but yeah just i mm. i would say that in the context of a black white and blood or black white and red anthology series this is probably about the same level of quality and the same level of in or out of continuity or you know not having to do with the main storyline as the Electra Black, White, and Blood series, which I, I do appreciate. I really like it. You know, it's a showcase for writers who either haven't ever gotten to write Moon Knight or old writers to come back. And it's a usually a showcase for artists to display their pencil work really well with some like striking color on it. And in that sense, I feel like this is really much on a level with the other Black, White, and Blood series, at least the Electro one and some of the Wolverine ones. I, I don't think it's bad for that. I didn't expect it to actually like continue the Jed McKay Moon Knight story forward. I was pretty disappointed by the Jonathan Hickman and Bachalo story, which was easily like a superstar pairing that I had never expected to work together and that I thought would be incredible. And somehow both the writing and art were for me incomprehensible. For two people who I, I never have trouble understanding either Bachalo or Hickman, and I did here, and that's so weird to me. But I really was fond of the other two stories, and we'll get to those. I agree with both of you. I was very disappointed with the books. And just like Steve, I mean, I think most of us were here for the Hickman story with the Bachalo art, and just like, oh yeah, it was incomprehensible for me. And I read it, I tried to read it multiple times, and it was very hard. As for the other two, the, the art was a lot better, but the stories were kind of safe. Well, we'll talk about about the last one because i think at least that one took some sort of shot at something interesting i honestly feel the same about this i think if you look at it yeah it's it is a little bit like the rest of the black white and blood books but i think some of those stories even if we don't know how in continuity a lot of those especially the electro one a little electro is very different things they put her up against that are definitely not in continuity but i think we've really gotten to understand electro more through those books and through her reactions and i i just i don't understand anything about moon knight more than this i think i understand less about moon knight having read this than i do <laughs> yeah it does a lot of what like the myers run and some other writers have done where they just throw something completely new at you with moon knight but there's not enough to really like get the idea of what's going on you can you can just get like get hints of like this future moon knight who's in a universe where something has happened and they're looking for MacGuffins, but it doesn't like ever resolve into something emotional like at all really beyond moon knight being kind of shitty to the to bunny and liking a dog more i cannot get behind conchu messing with kids especially as we've learned more and more how he targeted mark specter and the the horrible things that he did to him knowing that it would break his being and make him easier to manipulate later on down the line like <sighs> no and you're going to be doing this to a kid in space like i'm sorry but no and she's supposed to be a priestess what yeah i think there's a lot that we don't know and i think there's a lot that will never get followed up on this so which is 
my problem with it yeah. is that none of this is going to have follow through really yeah because yeah. you've got this set up and we're like wait what what is this and yeah just like in typical hickman fashion this is a story that implies maybe going over thousands and thousands of years and there's these references to gods and like very powerful beings which is like his table but we're gonna get like what eight nine pages and probably never gonna see here from this ever again so yeah this felt like this story especially, Mo, because the other stories are very self-contained. This is a story that needs a lot of room to breathe, like Hawksbox room. So, and probably better art, <laughs> which is weird to say, but yeah. I know. it's. I feel horrible public saying I didn't like Pachalo art. Like, I didn't hate the art. Like, I didn't I love hate Pachalo, the art. But, but yeah, just, I, I'm with you. It was really hard to kind of suss out what was going on. Especially, like, the action panels. Yeah. Like, the first four or five pages were during, like, this space pyramid base. That, that's pretty easy. But once you get into, like, the fight scenes, if you can call them that, like, it's just a mess. And, like, mm. I don't know if coloring would have saved it. But I don't think it would. I don't know. I think coloring often saves Pichella art. Like on uh, the Doctor Strange series that I love so much by him, like a lot of it would be really difficult to suss out if you didn't have color differences. So when the only color is red in a panel or like a bunch of like heavy darks and whites, it is really difficult to look through. And I got to say, as much as I've always appreciated this about Bachalo, going back to even Generation X, his layouts in the story are part of what make it so impossible to understand. Yeah, it's too busy without the coloring, I think. I do have to say, the one thing I did really like was the use of the red in this issue. Especially, I loved the idea of the red balloon that Bunny had. So, there are some things I did really like, art-wise. The lettering, I gotta say, this lettering is amazing. I wish we knew what they were saying when they were speaking in hieroglyphics. But, you know, besides that, you know, I, I did love the... There was some exciting use of lettering. There was... The, the red did pop in the parts that they used it. There's this one panel where, like, it's all red after, like, a bloody battle. And that looks very much like Buckalo from, like, the Age of Apocalypse, that sort of art. It's a story that's technically maybe well done, but just didn't hit any marks for me. They didn't do the story well. It came off yeah. like something that was the first couple pages of a chapter, and then that's where it ended. And this was supposed to be a more or less self-encapsulated short story over, what, eight or nine pages? It it, it didn't do that at all. In fact, I have far more questions than any sort of answer. Yeah, it seems to hint at like a larger idea that's out there. And I know writers like Hickman often like to say like, okay, well, there's this big universe that's much bigger than anything you know, so I'm just going to show you a snapshot. But it's regardless, it's unsatisfying. It's narratively unsatisfying, and it doesn't make me like this Moon Knight as a character or relate to them or understand their drive or motivation at all and it's the same with bunny I, I will say this for both the art and the writing i think one of my favorite things in it is the cute addition of bunny as a character and the bunny helmet it just made me think immediately of el conejo and la luna you know the aztec legend and i really liked pulling in their cultures, <laughs> like oh, yeah. moon related things into this i thought that was really cool i think there's a problem here with this sort of story in a like anthology title because there's sort of messed up expectations because we expect the short 10 page stories that are like as you said snapshots but are one and done snapshots not open up a whole universe and never pick up on it again snapshots mm. and that's probably why it's sort of disappointing and i'm not gonna say that a writer like hickman doesn't know how to write short stories because that's not true but hickman 
works better, way better in long form storytelling and anthology formats maybe don't lend themselves to that. Yeah, I'd have to agree. And Hickman stories often take years to play out fully. So just getting one snapshot of it may not be his strong point necessarily if it's a universe that we haven't seen him touch before. Like if you were to come back and touch the X-Men and do like a one shot story, like, you know, two or three years from now, he would get that voice really well and he would probably continue some of his lore. So let's move on to the second tale so white yet so dark okay moon knight and spider-man i did actually like the story in the in the writing because i thought it was very fun i like the idea of a transformer showing up and like spider-man and moon knight having a, a classic team-up style thing i it's always like a fun time when that happens for me i always enjoy those kind of team-ups in the comics i really really like the art here i do want to say i i am definitely criticizing the color choices here because i think i see some blue on spider-man it doesn't feel like it's sticking to the format and it's kind of really loose with the whole artistic conceit of these black white and blood issues but other than that, I like I really like the way everything is drawn. I like the way Moon Knight and Spider-Man interact, and I really like their banter back and forth. I like that it was uh, a bit funny, perhaps too funny for me. And like I told you guys earlier, I'm not sure what I make of the choice of using the uh, Far From Home suit here Fair. in the movies. Yeah, uh, and not the Moon Knight suit from the show. <laughs> and yeah, or like you know any others, just any other Spider-Man suit. But uh, as for the colors, I'm maybe not sure if that's a print issue, Steve, because I mean. I'm reading digital and I don't really see any blue, so that could be it, maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe I'm mistaking a weird shade of gray for blue, but Spider-Man to me looks distinctly blue in this. In fact, a lot of the gray doesn't look necessarily as gray. It might just be my eyes or the light, but I, it, it just feels yeah. like it is I definitely blue. Well, I think it's the the quality of the um, the watercolor that they used, like certain certain blacks, because there are very 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 few true blacks. Um, okay. Maybe the the type of black that they used had a slightly blue undertone, but I'm not mad at it because it's consistent across the entire oh, yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, okay, it's consistent across the entire story. They weren't just trying to sneak an extra in there, and I I kind of liked this art especially after the story that was right before it because it was uh, a little bit easier to digest and i kind of liked this because they they jumped across the multiverses <laughs> for their costuming because did you see deadpool's costume that's from the first oh movie. is it i did oh, not, wow. I did not yes wow. oh from my the, god uh... yes so deadpool number one the very end scene at the very end of the movie he's wearing this particular bathroom i almost died laughing when i saw that i'm like oh my god they're using the movie costume oh, right. so yeah to me that made sense That's bueller's bathrobe right is that <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yes. 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 He's he's wearing Ferris Bueller's bathrobe. He's like, "Hey, why are you guys still here? What do you expect? You know, uh, you know, Deadpool two trailer with you know like Nick Cage or Cable or something like that." I'm like, I left it. Oh my god, it was so good. I really, but yeah, no, no, like this made sense. <laughs> I did really appreciate seeing the uh, Ghost Ripper armor make a reappearance here. Previously, I think it's just been the bone armor or the Kanchu armor, but I always love that suit. I love when it shows up, and I thought that was pretty cool. There's just like, it feels like a Moon Knight story is the one thing about this issue. Like, it feels like it could slot into like almost any Moon Knight run and it would fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're just having a fun night out on patrol kind of story and not really have to do anything much and it works. Yeah, that makes for such a good short story, right? Like not have to worry about an overarching yeah. saga. It's just like, this is what happens when Spider-Man teams up with yet another street level costume hero. Um, one thing <laughs> I appreciate 
is that there's this, which I don't remember ever seeing in Moon Knight before. They used hieroglyphs again in this story from the previous story. Yeah. And it's very interesting. And I would love to know what those symbols mean. When I was reading this, part of me wondered whether this is like actual attempts at translating hieroglyphics into English, because I mean, that's, you know, that would be an interesting conceit or whether it's just a random assortment of them used in the same way that when they use like Norse runes or part of the photo in oh, yeah. comics, it's always like completely not correct at all. Yeah, it's usually nonsense, yeah. just like random symbols. But it's a fun story, right? It feels mm-hmm. like something that I'm like, I'm like, oh, cool, this is a fun story. Yeah, it's not like the serious and heaviness of Jen McCabe's run. It's really fun to see him have like the same kind of attitude that Moon Knight always has and fight against the idea of fun. I always like it when you see like Wolverine or like Moon Knight or, or other gruff characters like Elektra like fight against having fun. They're like, no fun for me. If there's one <laughs> thing I maybe didn't like about the art here and it's again about the colors i don't like that they used red for other characters that are not like the guest stars yeah i agree if you notice the lettering the letter bubbles for spider-man they're red so it makes sense oh red's for spider-man but why are the random henchmen two in red but that's like a very 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 minor the lettering choice on those bubbles is so weird at first i thought spider-man was speaking in his head or something Uh, Mm, mm. I I really like the lettering choice in this particular story, though, of using instead of onomatopoeias, the sound effects are all like things that they're doing mostly like lock, jump, run, run, run. I love that kind of because it's great. One of the sound effects is wipe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that was probably my favorite one. Just wiping his face and going wipe. There are a number of minor color choices that are strange, like Wancho pointed out. This is like totally a nitpick, and I'm not going to at all hold this against the story because this is one of my favorite stories in the anthology mm. so far. But there's no blood in the story, and all the red is used for anything but blood. <laughs> I'm like, it's on the cover. Mm. I like that because, like, you're coming into this Moon Knight story and you're expecting like tons of blood, tons of blood. So, like, to have this whole second story not have any blood and be a like a kind of a fun romp, there's a little, but it's not like a story full of it. Like, most black, white, and bloods usually are. I love that. It's it's a nice little fun twist from what I was expecting that I positively received, and I needed that after that Hickman story. <laughs> There's definitely like a little bit of blood on his lip on the guy he punched lip, but yeah. it's like so dark as to almost be black. <laughs> and then when he kills those two ghosts, they're ghosts. There's no blood there, but it's the brightest red of the entire comic, which is honestly really funny. <laughs> yeah, I like that they did something you know a little bit different. I think they had more fun with this story, and we kind of needed that because it's like so often Moon Knight is just dark just dark so giving him something kind of fun to play off of having him be a little bit more of the straight man was kind of refreshing yeah so it wasn't just dark I know these anthologies are not in current continuity you know but they are technically like canon stories from the past or whatever so what did you all think about the idea that at some point in the future maybe Spider-Man is going to go to the Hellfire Gala dressed as Mr. Knight CBC <laughs> Because we know he's not going like that this year. That is going to be... Wait, is that be actually funny. supposed to be the Hellfire Gala? It could be another too. gala, but we, like, there's only one. That's what I thought, but like, we've seen that Spider-Man's wearing something else, Yes, right? yeah. I mean, this could be in the future. It could be maybe something he's going to wear as an extra thing. It could just be another gala. Maybe it's a Wilson Fisk gala for some reason. But when I see gala Ooh. in a comic now, I'm Ooh. like, well, of course they're going to You know what? You know what? That would be very funny <laughs> if we got like a follow-up and just, just Spider-Man showing up to Wilson Fisk's like <laughs> Moyoro sort of thing pre-Devil's oh. Reign in a completely white suit. 
That would be well, you know, it'd be a white party. <laughs> oh. I also love how he turned Deadpool down so hard, so oh, yeah. fast. <laughs> no, is in a long time. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, I haven't read Deadpool in a long time either. Like. <sighs> In ages, because I'm not reading X Force and Wolverine now, so I'm kind of yeah. missing out on Deadpool. Besides Kelly Thompson's Deadpool, like I have not liked Deadpool as much as I like just one and a half panels. Like seriously, very good writing, extremely fun to read, and honestly, now that we've talked about how Deadpool and Spider Man are both from their various movies and franchises, I'm like actually super grateful that we got the the best Moon Knight costume in my opinion, which is the Declan Shelby one, and not the one from the show. Oh yeah, <laughs> I've got to talk about in the story Spider Man's seeming crush on Moon Knight. Especially there's a whole, there's a whole page where like at the bottom of it, Spidey's like thank you, and there's little hearts above Spidey's head. I don't think Spidey has a crush on Moon Knight. I think he just thinks Moon Knight is like super freaking cool. Spider Man in this is a little bit more like Deadpool when Deadpool teams up with like Cable or Wolverine, and I like really like that. <laughs> This actually worked pretty well for for how he seems like the Deadpool to Moon Knight's Wolverine. <laughs> Time to talk about Pax Americana. Let's go. Oh my god, yeah, Pax Americana, but worse. <laughs> <laughs> All right, watch out. Okay, um, so let's just get this let's out Let's talk of the about way. the end. Let's talk about the end now. So the end is not just the name of the story, but it's also the end of the comic. And it's a reverse uh, comic. It's a reverse comic, and I figured it out on the second page ah, okay, because, the, nice. like, it, like it's the writing didn't make sense. I mean, when I read it backwards, yeah. But I think what what Steve mentioned is that this is like a not an homage, but like very inspired. It's by the it. same conceit, right? And it's exactly the same conceit. I read Pax Americana last night again, and in Pax Americana, you can read it all the bubbles of, like dialogues in both ways, and you cannot read this story the dialogue. Oh both yeah, ways. I totally agree. Unsurprisingly, this does not pull off the trick as well as Grant Morrison. <laughs> I didn't notice till the fourth page, just for the record. That's cool that you got it. I was like on the fourth page towards the middle. I was like, these sentences don't make sense unless they're in reverse order. I didn't realize it until you just said it right now. <laughs> what? You read this whole comic and like what? didn't hate it <laughs> without realizing No. I actually really loved it. I thought they were I thought they were basically you know how sometimes there are movies that live themselves backwards by you yeah. know going forwards and like you basically you start at the end and then they slowly give you things that led up to this. That's what I thought they were going for. So I'm like, hmm, the sentences seem a little odd, but also I was following the, like the action of the panel even more than I was following just the sentencing. So yeah, to me, it, it made sense. The panel order, absolutely, in a way that, like, Pax Americana doesn't. Like, Pax Americana looks like it's in reverse. Like, from the moment you start watching it, you know, or when you, the moment you start reading that comic, you know it's in reverse. But this one, like, mm -hmm. absolutely, the panels could be in, like, any order, uh, which is really interesting, where the words just cannot. That's not like a bad thing. It's just, I think it's stylistically. They could have just, you know, moved the bubbles a bit. I don't know. I'm not a letterer. Honestly, I think it was nice because it tipped me off and it tips everybody off at some point while reading it that this is a backwards comic. And that was like a nice magic trick reveal. I was kind of jokingly comparing it to Pax Americana because it is the same conceit at its heart. But like, obviously, I'm not going to compare everything to one of everybody's favorite comics from Multiversity by Grant Morrison. But like... 
The art on this is so stunning. I love the conceit of it. And honestly, this would be kind of a nothing story without the backwards conceit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, agreed. Agreed. This story has the best art. Hands down. It is so good. Oh, yeah. I mean, Jorge Fornes is like, I don't know if you read Rorschach or his Daredevil. I love his Daredevil. And I've seen the Rorschach. It's incredible. I think the story would make sense without the letters even more. Mm. The the words wouldn't distract me from the beautiful art. Have you ever seen Jorge Fornes' Doctor? strange that's pretty great so that's an interesting idea though like without the wording would you be able to realize sooner or later that this was a backward story because i think if you are forced to look at the actions of everything then you would realize it's a backward story a lot sooner than if you're reading along i love how this presented a very very basic straightforward story using the format of the red white and blood like to its intended use with the you know with a lot of the red as the blood but it also presented it in a unique way so maybe the story didn't you know say a whole lot about moon knight but it did you know create a story that you had to kind of think a little to kind of realize what's going on i also appreciate that this is a story that most easily fits into death's run because it's moon knight oh, in the midnight mission you could just insert this into the trade and like it wouldn't really matter that much like in story wise la black white and blood like they have this interesting idea of in continuity but also out of continuity that like they're both playing off both concepts at the same time and I think it's interesting when stories here work with the current stories like provide extra scenes and I that's what I like most about this issue but I also didn't like that this, they had to put it in the end like you have to read it backwards to understand it because it's just make readers think you know I kind of like it because now when I did read it in reverse I also noticed that you start off with Moon Knight in this pure white suit with that almost pure red background like like almost like the sins of of his past as a mercenary and he knows that his world is covered in blood and doing this act is one of the ways he can take some of the red off of his ledger as it were as you read it backwards the panels get whiter and whiter and whiter until you're at the end where the background is very white and clean and pure and he's just got that little bit of blood spatter that almost mirrors her original blood spatter so I'm just like, oh, interesting. That is a super interesting a- analysis of the art. And- yeah, you could even say that Moon Knight's whitewashing himself. Ooh. Oh <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's very interesting that he ends up with like actually getting shot and actually covered in his own blood, but it's just like that little tiny speck in the panel in the middle of the page. You're right. There's less and less blood color mm-hmm. in this over time, even as he like t- just fucking runs over members of the Wrecking Crew and shit. This anthology issue has really pointed out to me the importance of coloring in Moon Knight. The three colors we get are black, white, and red, right? So it makes me realize how much of Moon Knight's coloring is not actually white on his uniform, but there's a lot of like off, like really faint greens and everything to show the depth of the white that he wears. Rochelle Rosenberg, everybody. Just amazing. Yeah, I hope she's on one of these anthology books going forward. Yeah, yeah it, would, it would be nice to see, like, some returning artists. I love that they used Sienkiewicz for the cover. And I love that, like, everybody well, in here has, like, not worked yeah. on Moon Knight before. I, I think that's really cool. If they keep, like, bringing back older artists for the covers, like, if we get a uh, Greg Smallwood cover, that would be super cool. But I appreciate that tie to the old continuity. Mm. I would love to see Rochelle Rosenberg 
Peach Mumiko and David Mack do a Moon Knight story because I think the artwork would be amazing and very, very different from anything that we've seen for him so far. Who else would you really love to see do a Moon Knight story in this anthology format? I got to echo Peach Momoko to get a like a 10 page Moon Knight in her Momoko verse would be absolutely amazing. Momoko would be cool. I would love like an Arby Silva appearance on these. I think that would be really Really excellent for the the tone of the series leonardo romero would be really cool he's going in the next issue oh leonardo romero is gonna be that's great news i love his work he was also in that uh chris pacello dr strange run with jorge fornes as well which is a cornucopia of great art i'd like the uh hawkeye team to get in here yes like from the fraction run i i think that's because it would be like a light very similar art between fornes romero and and uh from hawkeye that's like this sort of minimal cartoony style that i really yeah, really like everybody looks Super handsome and stylized. And, yeah, and if we could get, I mean, uh, Greg Smallwood back or uh, Declan Shelby too, that would be fun. But just for like a, a short story or I even a cover. just like to tie that back to the older artists while giving like new artists a chance to uh, do the anthologies i myself can't wait to see the anacinti one because her work on the electra one that led into electra 100 was actually pretty damn amazing so i can't wait to see what she's written for moon knight overall it was interesting i liked two of the stories one of the stories i could have very much done without i don't know if i'm gonna pick up the next one but uh talk to me in a month i will probably be picking up the next one i will pick up the next two issues for sure but uh if i would love if we could get like maybe five years or whatever like an actual story to hickman's story because I think that's the one with the most interesting concepts, just maybe not displayed on the page as well. I hate to be like, this was my least favorite story in this, so give them a series, because that's that's like... <laughs> I would actually like a Jonathan Hickman and Chris Bocciolo full series of this, just because I feel like I would understand it better if it had time and maybe a little bit more color. But still. Yeah. I'm... N- no. I'm okay with either somebody else picking up that storyline, or it just dying in the water where it is, because... I'm not here. Also right. acceptable. <laughs> I agree with Raven. I think Pacello is somebody who really shines under the right colorist. So I think in a traditional story, we might have with full coloring, we might have seen this in a different light. And Hickman was setting up a, a long game here. And, you know, if he just got like a full issue to try to explain some of it, maybe I would feel better. I was under the impression based on that first story that Hickman was going to be writing a story in each of these anthologies and it would continue the story like Marvel Comics Presents. But apparently that's not the case. So I was like, then why? Exactly. We also got a ton of marketing. I remember when the series was first announced that, oh, it's Hickman doing a Moon Knight story and everyone was so excited. Yeah, and there, I think a that's lot of marketing about speaks to the uh, problem with uh, expectations in stories. Yeah, I mean, they must have known that this was going to be an incomplete snapshot of, like, a completely new element to some extremely obscure Moon Knight like mythos, so I don't know what they were thinking with that one, but... It feels like they were giving the elevator pitch here in comic book form. Absolutely, absolutely agree. Like, you have one floor to impress me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, and it wasn't very impressive, unfortunately. Was that the shortest story in here or did it just feel that way i think it just felt i think that it way. just felt that way because uh, yeah. i mean for the last story since you have to read it like both ways it's artificially longer that's true when nathan yeah. and i read it together we read it all the way through yeah. the first way and then read it from the back again 
Yeah. Again, I just want to say I love Chris Pichella's art. I'm a huge fanboy for Chris Pichella's art, and I don't want to be like, it's bad. This layout is not it for this series. Mm-hmm.